You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy, along with its associated publications, particularly the Driven the EV Focus website. And uh, David from ITK, who's joining me as usual. Um, EVs and a federal government policy seems to be one of the key events of the past week. Oh yes, Giles. Good to good to have you back this uh, this week's episode. Um, uh, <laughs> yes, indeed. So, 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 sorry to have you go solo last week, but um, I think you managed it very well. Uh, well, I, um, anyhow, um, team team efforts are good things. Look, uh, the federal government's uh, announced that the fringe ben- benefit tax uh, exemption for EVs that cost under a threshold, I think it's something like seventy five thousand dollars. Um, uh, and that's uh, extremely advantageous for for companies and fleet owners. Uh, I read an article that showed calculations of up to th- of savings of up to thirty thousand uh, dollars, which is certainly very significant and will tend to push fleets and uh, and uh, government agencies and the like in, into buying EVs, assuming there were any to buy. Uh, but and it will work the other way as well, and it will encourage suppliers uh, of EVs uh, to supply some to Australia, although it still uh, won't overcome the fact that they have to supply to Europe uh, in order to to meet the uh, emission standards over there. The second thing it will do once it actually gets going is result in a very strong second-hand market for EVs in Australia, or a stronger one, because the fleets will tend to turn the car over faster than the private sector uh, so after two or three years although having said that the private sector those that are lucky enough to own an ev seeing that the second-hand values are very high at the moment probably some of them are willing to sell well exactly yes um now there's a fairly significant development and um probably point out too that it's actually a good sign of the way that um the greens and the independents are also sort of dealing with um government policy um labor had put through this um put put this policy forward as part of their sort of election platform and it was refined by the greens and um i think the act independent senator david pocock basically excluding plug-in hybrids which i think was a smart um move because we need a switch to full battery electric. So um, that's a good thing. As you said, though, David, it is a problem with can we get enough EVs to satisfy this new latent demand? And um, I guess until we actually um, probably start um, imposing emissions vehicle standards or vehicle emission standards um, in Australia, um, that might not be the case. I think VW Charles, is the doing... biggest... Um, Sorry, I was just going to say that VW has just done, you know, has, has just starting sort of teasing the market for the rollout of its ID4, which has been available in Europe for two years and um, brought two cars over, but it's not actually going to release these into this market until this time next year. So still another year away. Uh, absolutely, and globally, it's a, it's quite a big issue. Um, uh, the forecast I've been reviewing uh, recently suggests that. You know, EV car adoption rates are about compound growth of, say, 25% a year, right out to 2030. It doesn't sound like much 25%, but believe me, when you compound it, it it really adds up to a lot. 
And in theory, that should add up to quite a sharp cost down based on learning rate effects. But the trouble is that in EVs, uh, there is a genuine supply bottleneck in terms of the lithium, getting the lithium out of the ground that's going to be quite hard to overcome. And uh, so I think the industry is actually going to be supply constrained for the next two or three years. And that's probably going to see it's likely to see uh, costs and prices more likely to remain higher rather than lower. But of course, it's also very good news for the lithium industry um, to the extent that Australia is one of the world's largest, uh, I think it was the largest supplier of lithium uh, in, in 2021. So there's you know positives on the one hand, but uh, carbon reductions will be slower. Indeed, indeed. And look, while we're talking EVs, I should probably just note as well that um, the first commercially produced electric ute um, in Australia has been sort of unveiled. Uh, we had one of our writers from the Driven go off and um, roar around in one of the southern highlands of New South Wales um, last week, and um, and he wrote his report this week. So um, no $2,000, twice the price of the petrol version or the diesel version, but um, it's a Chinese company, LDV. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see, but look, it's it um, apparently, uh, at least it solves the question about do electric utes exist? Well, the answer is yes. Uh, we maybe haven't got the best and the brightest and the cheapest of them yet, but um, they're on their way. And I should also point out too that um, ROEV, which is a new startup set up by two former Atlassian um, executives, has also just released the pricing for their conversions. Um, and they're going about fleets in a different way, recognising the fact that you probably won't get many electric utes into the country over the next couple of years. They've actually devised, devised, devised this system for converting uh, electric utes. So I think they're starting off with um, one of the Nissan brands and then going to the Toyota Hilux, which is the biggest selling brand. So that's going to be fascinating to see how that actually works out. Yes, and then of course Tesla's got a million and a half orders for its ute, but let's not talk any more about EVs this, this week. I want to move on to uh, electricity uh, and note that, um, you know, we're about a third of the way there at the moment, at least in summer it looks like. The uh, cumulative, over the past 12 months we've had wind and solar has delivered about 25% of all uh, electricity in the NEM, so that, that's just wind and solar, and then you can add in another 9% from hydro. So, uh, you know, we're actually making reasonably good progress in terms of the historics, but the rate of growth just right now has slowed right down, and that's uh, of concern. If I look out to the futures prices, they're still uh, relatively high for the next uh, uh, three years. Uh, some of the cost pressures are, are perhaps coming off, like shipping costs have dropped uh, sharply, um, but and the oil price is down a little bit temporarily for whatever that means. It tends to drop the gas price, I guess, uh, but 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 most of the other cost pressures are still very much there, uh, and and so uh, you know consumers are still big incentive for rooftop solar, as far as I can see. The only uh, form of new supply where the cost hasn't actually gone up, say, 30% this year, um, uh, like EPC, uh, engineering procurement and construction contracts in utility solar, uh, are up from uh, like $1.10 to maybe $1.50, to give you an idea of, of that. But uh, rooftop solar costs, whilst they're flat, uh, maybe they're up a couple of percent, they really haven't changed. And so that's, that's pretty good news. Uh, but it does mean that when we look to the future, 
um, it's going to take a while to get those costs right back down to 2021 levels. A 30% cost increase is not going to unwind in five minutes. No, that's right, yeah. Um, and it's interesting, yeah, with the EPC contractors, it's a bit like electric vehicles, if you can find one. I mean, they're getting harder and harder to find um, with the availability and um, even getting sort of equipment and, um, and labour, uh, let alone the grid connections is um, difficult enough. And it was interesting to see the Australian Energy Regulator noting in its quarterly um, wholesale markets report, which came out last week, I think it was, um, noting that the new connections to the grid in 2022 will be the lowest for five years, which is probably not what we want to read right now because we need to be accelerating um, quite quickly. And that is then, of course, leading to the question about can we close the coal generators in the timeline anticipated? Frank Calabria from Origin Energy was um, raising the issue this week, sort of saying that um, maybe they won't be able to close at the time nominated, he wasn't specific about Araring, but he wasn't exactly sort of reassuring anyone that August 2025 would be the exit date. And then you come up with this issue about sort of compensation and payments to make sure that the coal generators can continue if they are required. And that comes down to the cost of the coal supply, the cost of maintenance and things like that. So a few more tricky details to be dealt with. But um, before we get into our um, interview with Amanda Carroll from Next, um, uh, Next Economy about the transition at Gladstone, just wanted to mention one final thing, David, um, the closure of the announced closure of the Torrens B gas generator in South Australia by AGL. Um, it's going to close in 2026. It will actually be 50 years old, which seems like a fair run. Um, so I don't think it's any big surprise then, but I guess it's sort of significant in the way that um, this is one of the last of the combined cycle gas generators, what people would have once described as sort of baseload or intermediate gas generators, really being displaced by wind and solar, rooftop solar, battery storage, fast start, fast start generators, and then ultimately the, the death blow was probably the new transmission link from South Australia to New South Wales, which they fought quite hard against, but um, of course couldn't really sort of beat the tide and... Um, and I guess that's that. Well, uh, Torrens Island, which I have visited, um, the, the, the Torrens Island A, in all honesty, uh, I actually thought it predated Captain Cook when I, when I did visit it. But uh, <laughs> Torrens Island B is a steam turbine, gas steam turbine, which is not a technology used anymore. Uh, uh, and I guess it was predicted that when Energy Connect, the transmission line from South Australia to New South Wales was completed, uh, in fact, the actual modelling had all gas generation closing on the day. And of course, Danny Price uh, from Frontier Economics wrote saying, well, actually, that's a ridiculous assumption. And perhaps, and I think it probably is, but nevertheless, uh, here's one gas generator that is actually going to close, um, uh, even though it's, it, it, the, the assumption was that coal generation from New South Wales uh, would then be flowing back to South Australia and, and so you wouldn't need gas for the firming. But of course, there's not going to be that much coal generation either uh, further down the track. Anyhow, that's all in front of us. Let's, uh, I, I, we've got a great guest this week to talk, I think, about what's going on in uh, a centre of great interest to me, and that, that's uh, Gladstone. Well, look, that's right. I'm just sort of, just sort of um, doing a bit of a segue from um, Torrens Island to Gladstone. I mean, Torrens Island, I think, is going to end up being um, one of the first sort of fossil fuel hubs, which has turned into a, um, a green industry hub. And this is kind of AGL's big plan for the future, turning Torrens Island and then the sort of the Liddell Bayswater Centre in uh, Hunter Valley 
and um, then um, Luoyang in the Trobe Valley. So one of the big questions there is um, we kind of concentrate mostly on well, how much capacity they're going to build, what technology they're going to be using, what are they going to be doing there, what are the connections like, blah, 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 blah. But the big thing behind these transitions is, well, what happens to the local communities and what happens to the workforce? And that, of course, is a really big question for Gladstone, um, one of the major centres for coal production, coal exports, energy production and exports um, in Australia, if not the world. And um, just in the last couple of weeks, one of the first ever 10-year transition plans was released, which sort of you know maps a path about how to negotiate this transition, not just thinking about megawatts and gigawatts and this, that and the other thing, but thinking about, well, how do you bring the communities with you? How do you bring, how do you look after the, the labour force? And key to that um, um, report was Dr. Amanda Kale from Next Economy, and I caught up with her earlier this week. Dr. Amanda Kale, uh, thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thanks for having me, Giles. Um, you're the uh, CEO of, um, of The Next Economy, I guess like Renew Economy. We've uh, managed to pick up all the good <laughs> names for the future. <laughs> I think you, you stole, your, stole that name. I was looking at that name when I was registering and I was like, damn. <laughs> <laughs> it's so I did something else. Next <laughs> I looked at the next economy and went, oh, that's even better, actually. So there you go. So I think you've landed in the right place. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> you uh, have been involved in what is a groundbreaking or a landmark project, basically helping a council, a regional council, in this case Gladstone, develop a 10-year transition plan. Tell me what, um, well, maybe you start with um, Next Economy and, and, and what you see your role is and how you became involved with this sort of Gladstone project. Yeah, so the, I set up the Next Economy uh, back in 2018 to help regional communities manage economic change, really. I was getting a lot of communities coming to me with big economic challenges, realising that they weren't resilient for the long term. And most of those communities were communities with ties to fossil fuels, so places in central Queensland, the Hunter, Latrobe Valley, uh, where they were seeing a lot of change in the energy sector and they just didn't know where to start with that. And politically, it was really hard for them to even talk about. So we do a range of things from you know, very place-based um, you know, community forums, getting people to understand what's happening, um, starting to do some planning with industry and government. What most people don't know is that we take what we're learning on the ground and actually feed that into government policy or industry strategies. We do a lot of work with behind the, behind the scenes with government and industry and then also share the positive stories because for the last couple of years it's all looked pretty terrible in the energy sector. So we've, we've done quite a lot of media and in telling that story that regions have been leading the way. They haven't been waiting for state and federal government. They've just been trying to get on with, with managing because they know they're the ones that are either going to lose out or benefit um, if, if they get it right. So basically these regions, they understand what's actually before them and what's going to sort of happen. They just really want to, someone to come up with a plan. They want to sort of be heard and be understood. Yeah, and in the case of Gladstone, um, why they decided to go ahead with this back in 2020 before um, a lot of other people were thinking about this was because they were seeing both a lot of um, proponents coming into the region proposing very large projects that they didn't really understand. They were hearing about changes in the energy sector at a global level but didn't really know who to trust around, you know, is coal really on its way out? 
or do we have it for the next 50 years? You know, what's going to happen to the power stations? They were getting so, so many different sort of bits of information from different players. They wanted to get on the front foot and take the reins and go, well, we need to figure out what's happening here and what we can do. Um, even though we're local government, we don't have a lot of formal power. We need to be able to answer questions when the community come to us and we need to figure, be prepared for, for what's coming. It's a question, just to paint the picture then, I mean, I guess people sort of know the name because they associate it with sort of um, um, as being a big port. So in there at the moment, I mean, it's a large centre for the export of energy and it's got energy terminals there. It's got a whole series of coal-fired power stations. It's probably got a bit of other industry. Um, it's also been a coal export port, um, I understand as well. Can, is, is, that, is that a correct the summary? The fifth largest coal export. Yeah, it's the fifth largest coal export terminal in the world. Oh, and it's go. got, um, yeah, and when I first went there, they proudly told me that they were the carbon capital of Australia because it's not ah. just the fact that they're exporting coal and LNG. Um, they're one of the biggest export terminals, uh, maybe the second largest. Um, they're up there anyway in terms of the one of the largest LNG export terminals in the world as well. Um but it's actually also that Gladstone was set up as an industry town. So all of the industries that are there are highly carbon intensive. Um, the largest uh, re concentration of Rio Tinto's assets in the aluminium smelters and alumina um, plants are in Gladstone. There's a very large chemical manufacturer um, that also does explosives and things like that. There's a cement manufacturer. So this is a town that is very dependent on carbon at the moment. So they knew that if they don't get this right, if um, if change happens really quickly and they're not ready for it, they're, they're really going to suffer. Mm. So tell me then, what did they come to you for? They, they You said two years ago they sort of set this, set this uh, process in motion. What were they trying to do? What were they trying to find out? What were they trying to prepare for? So, um, so they wanted to understand what was happening in the energy sector and then what did that, all the different aspects that go with that. But originally when they came to me, uh, hopefully they don't mind me saying this, um, they kind of passed a resolution that they should come up with a transition strategy um, and because, you know, they'd been to some workshops and then they had some other region like Latrobe Valley coming to them saying we want the federal government to, to support regions to manage transition. And for some reason they went, that's a good idea, we should just we should pass a resolution to come up with a transition strategy. And afterwards, they didn't actually know what a transition strategy was. So they came to me and said, um, can you help us figure this out? And initially, I, I actually said to them, oh, look, there's other organisations that do really good technical work. You know, um, there's universities, there's SORO, there's, you know, there's climate works or beyond zero emissions. They can help you calculate your emissions reduction um, across different sectors and, and come up with, you know, what you need to do to, to reduce those emissions, emissions. And very cleverly, I think now, um, they, they said, actually, no, that's not what we want. We said, they said, you know, industry, other people can figure the technical details out. Why we're coming to you is because this community needs to have an open conversation about what's really going on. There's so much misinformation. It's politically really sensitive. People are really scared. We need to have a really inclusive community-led process around figuring out what's really going on, what do we need to do about it, and what's our responsibility moving forward. So it wasn't just about, you know, how much renewable energy is going to be built and, you know, what does the hydrogen industry need to get going? It was questions like 
how do we use this massive change and disruption as an opportunity to diversify an economy that is very dependent on a few commodities at the moment? So what does economic diversification look like? What will it take to get there? Um, how do we make sure that workers are looked after, both workers in the existing fossil fuel industries, but also where are we going to get the workers for all these other new industries that are, that are popping up around the place? How do we make sure that people have been, who've been kind of traditionally excluded from the workforce, like women and young people and First Nations people, older workers, people living with disabilities, um, which are a high, you know, there's quite a few people who are not participating in the workforce in the region. How can we make sure that they benefit from this in a meaningful way? if they want to. Um, and then how do we make sure that the community benefits long term and that we don't actually trash the environment more, um, but actually look at regeneration of land and water resources. So yeah, so it's the whole, it's a regional economic development question rather than, I guess, a technical project around how much renewable energy do we need to build and how are we going to phase out um, coal fired electricity over time. And so what, I mean, those are all sort of really you know, three at least sort of, you know, really big themes there. So let's just go to the jobs, you know, the, the existing jobs and transitioning to new jobs and then finding new, um, you know, finding new labour. Um, what sort of conclusions did you, um, did you come up with? Yeah, so, I mean, jobs tends to be the kind of catch cry at the moment. <laughs> you know, for the last couple of years, every mm. plan and now government is like, you know, it's the Queensland Energy and Jobs Plan that came out by the Queensland government recently. Um, so I still think there's this kind of fear that that people are going to lose their jobs and but actually when you start to get into the detail of what's happening in places like Gladstone or Newcastle or other places, the issue is actually not having enough workers or the right kind of workers to service the new industries um, in terms of numbers but also skill the types of skills that are needed. So there's sort of a couple of different parts to the workforce question. One, we do need to look after workers that are um, you know, currently working in coal-fired electricity plants or um, associated coal mining, uh, um, you know, because, you know, these industries are in decline and, and people now do understand that in central Queensland. We've gone from complete denial of that maybe 18 months ago to people now accepting that the, that world is changing and they need to figure that out. And, you know, there's really practical things that it's not rocket science around what we need to do. It's We've got time and now there's some um, actual timelines around closures of plants in Queensland that the government has, has committed to roughly. Um, so how do we use that time as people retire? Um, you know, how do we train up people that are going to go on to other jobs? Um, you know, what what is it in terms of benefits that need to be thought about if people are um, moving on from that? So you know, there's nothing really that new in that. It's just following through and making sure we, we do it and we take the time to do it well. Um, the big question is around skilling people up. So how do we train people for the hydrogen industry? What are the skills that are needed? If there's new manufacturing coming in and we're digit, um, you know, it's going to be much more automated, what are, you know, we don't have those skills at the moment. So how do we make sure that we're bringing people through? How do you talk to high school students about convincing them to take on courses where they're going to learn those skills when those industries, they can't see and touch them at the moment, they don't exist. So it's a very long-term kind of planning around training and skills development, migration policy, because there just aren't enough people in the region um, to feed the projects at the scale that they're talking about, whether it's renewable energy construction or 
ongoing manufacturing opportunities. Um, and then this piece around inclusive employment. You know, we've been talking about, especially in the election, that, that you know, we've got the lowest unemployment rates ever. But what people weren't talking about was the fact that to be counted as unemployed, you have to be actively seeking work and participating in the workforce, which is only about 65% of adults who could be working. So there's over a third of um, adults who are not participating in the workforce right now. Is there an opportunity to engage them in a different way, which is what we were hearing from women and First Nations people and young people during the consultation. It's not that they're, they're lazy or anything like that. It's just it's been really hard for them to participate in the workforce. So how do we need to rethink work in a way that that opens those doors? And to give you a practical example, you know, at the moment an industry town like Gladstone, they work on 12-hour shifts. If your partner, um, if you're a woman and your partner's working a 12-hour shift and you've got a couple of kids, that's not really an option for you if you're doing caregiving as well. Um, at the moment there's very there's not enough childcare facilities, there's not enough aged care facilities. So if you've got caring responsibilities, a lot of the jobs are impractical. So, you know, there's some really practical, tangible things that we could be doing to make sure that the jobs that are created actually benefit local people. And we don't do a repeat of the past with the LNG industry where we get a whole lot of fly and fly out workers and everything that flows from that doesn't actually invest back in the region for long-term prosperity. Mm. And you guys, um, I think you consulted about 220 different sort of groups, people, organisations and things like that. It's an extraordinary effort. Well, most people kind of, what, what, what were the position of most people? Were they sort of initially a bit sort of sceptical? Were they kind of on board? Did they understand what was happening and were responsive? Were there sort of some sort of, you know, people just sort of digging in and saying, no, this, this, this mustn't happen, this can't happen? Um, it was really interesting, actually, because we, I mean, I've worked in the region for five years, so since 2018, and I've seen a massive shift in in that period, even in the last 18 months, really. So 18 months ago, we held the Central Queensland Energy Futures Summit um, in Gladstone in April, and we got 150 people from heavy industry, government, traditional owners, environment groups, unions into the room. Um, and people were actually scared to go to the summit. This is back in April, 18 months ago because nobody had had a public conversation about the fact that the energy sector was changing. And we literally had people calling us going, I'm really worried about this. Who else is turning up? I might lose my job if I'm seen to be, you know, um, opposing coal. And it was like, it's not about that. It's actually about the energy system is changing. Let's talk about what it means for the region. And we had a really productive two days um, of once people got over the, the shock and got in the room, um, they went, oh, this is a practical issue we need to sort out here. Let's let's get on and, and went into a kind of problem-solving mode. And that was a big shift in the conversation because once everyone could see that everyone wanted to have the conversation, it took the heat out of, out of it. And then the next six months in the second half of 2021, the region just got inundated with, you know, announcements around new hydrogen proposals or Rio Tinto coming out saying it was going to decarbonise its assets or Cement Australia coming up with a decarbonisation plan and Japanese and Korean investors coming into the region. So it became real and tangible to people that not just the risk but the opportunity and it's like, okay, if we want to grasp these opportunities, we need to move. Now that was the discussion mostly at government and industry level. So it was doing this process which was... Um, still with a lot of government industry 
reps, but also then community facing. We weren't exactly sure where the community was at and we were doing this in the lead up to the federal election um, where the local mayor was also running in the federal election. So we weren't sure how that was going to play out. Um, but interestingly, they're just people just wanted to have the conversation. They were just, there wasn't pushback. Um, people showed up and were, particularly industry, were grateful for the opportunity to just lay it out all on the table and go, look, at the moment we don't have enough state and federal government coordination of this if we want to build a hydrogen industry let's figure out what are the different pieces that need to go together here and for some and for most of them that was the first time they'd had that conversation which I found astonishing because there's so much attention on hydrogen um but other industries too it's like there's so many different pieces to this puzzle how are we going to figure this out where are the connections where are the resources going to come from what expertise do we need on the community level, it was probably a bit more of an education piece up front, like actually getting people on the same page about what was happening, answering their questions, um, having really solid evidence and data for what we were saying. But they knew already that things were changing and they were ready to have that conversation about how they wanted development to occur that was going to benefit them in the long run because a lot of people were really scarred by the LNG experience and they don't want to see that again. So um, people, people were ready to kind of go, you know, can we do it differently this time? Here are the issues we had around housing and um, fire and fire workforce and lack of investment in health services and all of, you know, the roads, cost of roads and waste ending up on council and, you know, how do we make sure, hold industry to account? What is it that we want out of this? Um, and what do we need to know to move forward um, and what do we expect of local government and state government and federal government and industry? So those roles and responsibilities became a really big focus of the conversation. Mm. You've produced an incredibly detailed report um, with the Gladstone Council and it's um, pretty close to 200 pages, got lots of details, a list of projects, sort of um, calls to action, um, discussions uh, and things like that. What happens to um, the report now? Does it go and sit in the library um, or is it a call to action <laughs> to the council? Does it, um, is our governments engaging on it? Um, I mean, it's an incredibly valuable document. I mean, how do you now get that value out of it? Yeah, so I'm very pleased to say it's not about what happens next. It's already happening. Um, we, were, we worked in partnership with council we had a working group within council that um, was consisted of the economic development officer, head of strategy and planning, the environment person, the media person. So we had like a team of six to eight people, um, depending on who turned up each week. Um, and we met every fortnight or weekly in the busy times. So they co-designed the whole process with us um, and they attended all of the community engagement activities that we did and, and industry workshops. Um, so even before we launched the plan, they had already started assigning budget line items, staff identified what additional funding they need to actually um, be able to service the roadmap. So they have the level of ownership at the launch was something I've never seen before. I'd never seen so many people so proud of something that they had done. And the mayor was, was really talking so loudly about you know, that they were leaders in this space and they weren't going to leave their community behind. Um, they were going to take the reins on this. And, yeah, it was it was really great great to see. And we, we loved working with the council. I mean, people care about their communities. They just, they just wanted a bit of help to think it through and figure out what it is that they need to do. Mm. 
what other communities are thinking along the same lines? I mean, um, it's a landmark project. I mean, it's one that seems to me that should be replicated or needs to be replicated. There's so many other centres going to go through the same transition in the Hunter Valley, the Latrobe Valley, and the Collie region of um, Western Australia. And there's probably many others I, I'm not thinking about, not come to the top of my head right now. Um, are, are you doing similar things with, with other regions? Um, so there's a few things going on. We have been inundated with requests, which is great. Um, I guess there's a big question around now that we, we have had a change in federal government, they are more interested in tackling this question of how they support regions managing um, the energy transition. Um, and in different places, there are different structures already set up. So in Latrobe Valley, there is Latrobe Valley Authority that has been um, doing this work on the ground for the last, you know, six years now, I think, since Hazelwood shut and have taken a long-term regional economic development view. We're going to see more power stations closed down there so their work isn't done. Um, although uh, I think they're, they've only had their <clears throat> budget renewed to June next year, so hopefully whoever wins the Victorian government will keep them going. In Collie, the state government over there has um, set up a Collie delivery unit under um, the Premier and Cabinet and has been working with locals there. So they've, they've been um, working on their plans for the future. Um, but the Hunter is, is a big question mark um, and we are getting a lot of requests from people down there. Um, and other areas like Spencer Gulf, Illawarra, um, places with heavy industry who are, uh, you know, sort of, trying to figure out what all of this means for them and how they capture the benefits. At the moment, the federal government um, under Prime Minister and Cabinet has set up a net zero economy task force and they are looking at a range of different options for how they might support regions moving forward. Um, the unions have been pushing and, and we and others have been pushing for a national transition authority that can set kind of high-level policy targets and funding that regions can access. And ideally, they're, they're supporting regional transition authorities to set up. So they're not just coming up with a plan like we did. Um, they're actually, you've got a body in place for a good five to 10 years in regions where they're going to get hit with massive amounts of change like Gladstone um, to actually manage that over time and, and help them access resources and expertise as they need it to not just do one plan, but to do continuous, you know, iterative planning and communication with industry and help coordinate all the different aspects of it moving forward. So that's the sort of thing that's being talked about both at a state and a federal government level at the moment. Where that lands, I'm, I'm not sure. It's it's raising very big questions for government around, you know, what is the role and responsibility of government that we've had, a you know, 25, 30 years of kind of that neoliberal influence seeping in saying, you know, it's not government's job leave it to industry but I think they know now that that doesn't always pan out particularly in times where you've got so much uncertainty and change happening all, all at once so they know they need to step in they're talking about their role in developing industry policy for example but um, where they land is we'll, we'll see probably in the next couple of months. Mm. Well I think Gladstone's own experience with the LNG industry sort of indicates that you can't leave it to industry you, um, you, you do need some sort of um, government um, government intervention in there or at least sort of you know setting the boundaries and the rules and just making sure that um, the local communities are properly looked after. Yeah and the right investments in infrastructures in place and that you think about all the other things that will attract workers or enable workers to live in the region like health and education and childcare and mm. and things like that um, but you know 
think about that for a minute. LNG was one industry and the massive impact that had, positive and negative, mostly negative for livability in the region. That's just one industry. We're not talking about one industry here. We're talking about the transformation of the entire energy sector as well as manufacturing on top of that, as well as a changing agricultural sector. Like this is, this is a massive <clears throat> regional challenge and um, that fits across multiple different government portfolios and economic sectors. Like we, we need, it needs to be someone's job to be keeping an eye on all the different pieces and, and trying to facilitate and enable and help good development to happen, not just development at any cost. Hmm. I mean, so, so much of the discussion about the sort of the transition to renewables and, and look, renewable economies is as guilty of it as as, as anyone else. Um, it's just really talking about you know there's X gigawatts of this is going to be built and that's going to mean an X percentage transition and X amount being invested and blah 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 and can it be connected to the grid and do we have the rules and regulations going around? I mean, what you've been discussing and working on with these communities is you know just something fundamental. Um, you know, it's the whole social license thing. It's sort of bringing the communities along it's absolutely sort of critical to the success of this whole transition plan. Um, having worked with you know, Gladstone and obviously with a lot of other, talking to a lot of other communities and, and, and now governments who are sort of properly engaged, um, you'd expect with this whole process. I mean, are you sort of confident that at least that part of the equation, um, you know, we, we're going to have some real arguments going on about capacity markets and other different things and all the other sort of, you know, the technical aspects of the transition, but do you, are you confident that we can get this part right of the of, of the transition, uh, the social and the community aspects, because um, these are not easy things to achieve in any great transition that we've seen in the past. You know, I think people have been left behind. I mean, can can, can we get can we get this done properly? Uh, I'm 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 really torn right at the moment because, on the one hand, like it isn't it a relief that we're arguing about capacity mechanisms. <laughs> safeguard mechanisms and you know we can finally talk about this this is amazing this is becoming real and things are moving fast the money is moving fast and i'm talking to a lot of industry players i want to i have been challenging people a little bit i i actually hate the term social license um and even you know the the people are talking about this as a kind of community problem to solve it's not a community problem to solve this is about what industry does and making sure they do the right thing and that government does its job around, like you said, mm. setting the parameters, the rules of the game. This is about protecting people and it's about protecting the environment and making sure that we achieve what we need to achieve in terms of our climate goals um, and transforming the energy system in a way that we can keep the lights on. To me, this is like, how do, it's not, let's do all this technical stuff and then we just need to manage community's reaction, which unfortunately is how we've been taught to think about the social license piece because it's come out of mining <laughs> like that's it's kind right. of a, the, the legacy issue of the of that i think this is an opportunity to do things really differently we know what happens um when we do the standard practice and it's not great we've got communities that are way more savvy now because they've been on the receiving end of things we can't just build transmission lines in the way that we did in the 70s for example we need a different approach to this so my challenge to industry, um, which I've been saying, is how do you think about this around um, is, what's the potential for engaging community? When I say community, I'm saying the right people at the right time um, on the right problems. How do you engage them at every step of the project cycle, not just at the end when everything's signed, sealed and delivered and then you just kind of 
telling people and maybe throwing some money at them um, as kind of a way to keep them happy. You know, from the beginning of these project developments, how do you think about um, how you're going to house workers if you are bringing in a lot of itinerant workers? Where are the opportunities to invest in things that are going to leave the region better off? Um, how are you setting up, like, how is government and others working to ensure that if there are procurement targets in place, that there's enough the businesses locally can actually service those, the, you know, procurement opportunities, um, that we've got the right workers in place for long-term, you know, jobs that might come out of this um, and that, that we're including, you know, people who've been excluded from the workforce for a long time. If we are financially investing back into the community, you know, the number of people who say to me, we don't want the sporting club thing, we want real investment long-term. Can we actually work with communities from the beginning saying, okay, what are your investment priorities, local council? What are the things that you need investment in and can industry and government play a role in, in that instead of just setting up a community fund that doesn't really do very much? So, you know, this is, we need to get away from social license and go, how do we treat communities genuinely as stakeholders in this process um, that will influence the outcomes of this development as much as anything else um, and 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 work with them around how this plays out because I am worried at the moment about some of the things that I'm hearing in terms of um, behaviours of, of some proponents trying to get a foot in the door. I'm worried about concerns that I have concerns about some of the things I hear musings by people in government around, well, maybe we just need to change some of the environmental laws to get stuff built quickly. Um, you know, we can't end up with more problems at the end of this than the ones we're trying to solve. Does industry get this then? Because, um, you know, I, it sounds to me that what you're sort of saying, you know, sort of the pushback against the description of social licence, it sort of makes me think of carbon credits. And there was a report that came out last week showing that, you know, companies still go for the cheapest carbon credit rather than the one with the most integrity. So presumably we don't want them to take this approach when we're talking about sort of, you know, the lives and the future of communities. Yeah, I think industry is worried about it. Um, well, particularly the good operators because they know how quickly an industry can be ruined and how hard it is to come back from for the match. Um, and there's kind of this mixed kind of <laughs> contradictory thing that happens when when we talk to them. On the one hand, they're saying they they want um, they want the rules of the game set up. That's where government comes in. So they're saying you know we want the right regulatory environment to enable good practice and that shouldn't be left up to industry to decide um, but on the other hand they're sort of saying oh you know well you know in renewable energy we've been dealing with individual stake um, landowners for example do we really need more transparency around payments and it's like well actually you do because people are not trusting you because they know that things are going on but they don't know who's benefiting and how much so it's it's how do we get that line right around here are the minimum expectations of industry having the right legislation and regulations in place that are consistent across states which is a big problem for industry at the moment they're dealing with completely different frameworks um, and then people can go above and beyond that but there's there's transparency around it and everyone kind of knows where they stand well, Amanda, look, um, thank you very much for coming on the Energy Insiders podcast um, this week. And look, congratulations on your work with um, Gladstone and, um, and with other councils and communities and government. And um, 
you know, um, let's hope that uh, this, this transition is going to be quite big. It's going to happen very, very fast. Let's hope that we can, um, we can actually get it right at, um, at all levels. Thanks for having me on the show, Giles. And that was um, Amanda, Dr. Amanda Kale from Next Economy. Um, look, it's um, it's a it's a really important thing, um, David. Um, fascinating to see the speed of the transition, just in the way the community is sort of, is sort of seeing this, this this change. Sort of going from sort of denial and resistance to not wanting to be seen to be talking about it to really embracing. Uh, this change and just sort of planning the future to look after the communities because as um, Amanda said, you know, um, the local councils, they do care about the communities and want to do the right thing about them. So congratulations for Glad to Gladstone for taking that initiative. Ah, yes, I think it's been recognised in the industry that there's a tremendous amount of renewable energy potential around Gladstone, which is no secret, and there's also a lot of heavy industry, the alumina and the LNG, not so much the LNG, it's very hard to electrify the uh, compression at the of, of, of the gas uh, that was talked about at the time of the investment but it's not going to be done now I don't think but also the um, the aluminium smelter uh, up, up there some aluminum aluminium and other other heavy, heavy industry and there's plenty of renewable resources there's maybe a little bit of a shortage of water is is the one thing I've I've, I've heard talk about um, and of course if you look at it down the track what you what you eventually create is um, uh, a franchise, a group of people that are more interested in promoting renewable energy because it becomes their financial interest uh, as, a, as opposed to promoting uh, coal because that's where their jobs and financial interest are. So we've already seen this in the EV industry again, sorry to mention it again, that, that once, you owe, once you get some um, traction uh, then you create lobby groups that are in favour of what you're doing instead of always arguing against it. Absolutely, and then you get to the tipping points where um, basically everyone wants it to happen. Um, look, thanks very much to Amanda for um, and Amanda Kale from uh, Next Economy for joining the podcast. Um, thanks to you, David, for joining the podcast once again. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors, um, Pylon and Evergen. And um, I think we've got a couple more episodes to go before the end of the year, so we're looking forward to bringing um, some more great guests and discussions to this podcast and that's all for this week and bye for now energy insiders was brought to you by evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimizes residential and commercial solar and battery systems evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant Generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole, Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.